listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. said, since everything in life is but an experience, perfect in being what it is, having nothing to do with good or bad, acceptance or rejection, one may well burst out in laughter. Lung Chen Pa is his name. I'll read it again. Because I think at, at a very, very core level, this is much of what this particular sangha is about. We give it a name, Infinite Smile, but that sense of what it means to be broadened so fully by the experience of what is actually happening. That laughter is a very natural response in the face of everything, in the face of everything. That release, which is what laughter is, that release can clue us into so very, very much. So once again, Long Chen Pa says, since everything in life is but an experience, perfect in being what it is, having nothing to do with good or bad, acceptance or rejection, one may well burst out in laughter. Everything we could ever need for awakening is right here. Right here. And now it's right here. And right here. And right here. In other words, by saying that, we look at this as being not time-bound, going to get a little esoteric here. Awakening is not time-bound. It's actually what can be aware of time itself. Just like that in you, which can be aware of your thoughts, can be aware of your environment, can be aware of your feelings, that awareness, which is never not here, is awakening. We equate this sometimes with um, what is ever-present in the ocean. I know I've brought up this metaphor before. It's, it's bandied about and used by tons of incredible, in my view, incredible spiritual teachers, but the idea that the ocean shows up in experience in so many different ways. It's a wave. It's a series of waves. It's depth. It's foam, it's vapor, it's all of these things. But the quality of the ocean, it doesn't vary with whatever depth or whatever form it is in. The quality of it is wetness. It doesn't change. You don't suddenly get to 3,000 feet below the surface in the Mariana Trench, and it's like, oh man, this is nice dry water. It's always wet. 
core of who you are, the nature of your mind is always awake. It's always aware in the same way that wetness is always there for the ocean. And I think I spoke about this last time. (laughs) It's laugh time now, folks. So (laughs) last time I spoke about how the experience of uh, plugging into this deepening, this awareness, this being that's always already here is very similar to um, allowing the clouds to, to leave and your experience of the sun, which is always already shining. It's never not shining. It's just that our experience can be an experience of rain, an experience of a torrential downpour. Maybe it's just a mist. But it's an experience as opposed to the recognition that the sun is shining even though it may be raining. It's just a whole different perspective. And shifting into that becomes our sadhana or our spiritual practice. We do this by surrendering. We also, through stillness practice, can, in essence, kind of burn away those veils, cook away that fog. When we become aware of the clouds and we pay full attention to the clouds in our life, that attention tends to keep them from getting any darker. And with practice, it actually begins to help them dissipate. You know how if you're driving down I-5, you get Thule fog. Sometimes it just shows up and it's like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow the car down, slow the car down. And the temperature has to increase, the ground temperature has to increase in order for the fog literally to burn off. It's exactly the same in our practice. We increase the temperature by being able to observe our inner fog put it in a different language, we become aware of the veils between the perceived sense of who we are, ego, and what's real. I've sometimes said, um, responded to the question, you know, well, okay, what is ego? Um, my pat response is probably, you know, it's this that in us which feels separate, which the separate self-sense. I've also said ego is everything that moves. Anything that moves, in other words, creates a relationship within us that recognizes and perceives that movement and then categorizes it and gives it a story. It might be a positive story, yes, I like, or negative story, no, don't like, go get, avoid, any one of those, any variance of those. The ego perceives it, connects to it, gives it a story, and then chooses. But the choice is so 
deeply unconscious and it's so bound by inertia, you know, our habits, you know, well, I always, I always turn that way. If I see chocolate chip cookies, I grab them, period. Don't try to get me to quit because I'm not, I love chocolate chip cookies. Okay, that's a silly example. Happens to be quite real for me. It's a great practice for me to look at chocolate chip cookies and say, huh, wow. Begin to really, really get very close to the desire. And recognizing when I just go with it and I don't recognize the desire, what happens? The clouds thicken. Cookies are very uh, basic, simple, non-dangerous example. But it's a great practice. I always loved how one day Norman Fisher was giving a talk at the uh, at Green Gulch, and he passed around this big bag of, um, uh, I guess it was uh, Dorito potato chips. Remember when Jay Leno was the spokesperson for these things, and he said, you know, you, or you can't just eat one or something like that. Maybe I'm screwing it up. I don't remember if he was the spokesperson at this point, but you can't eat just one. And what a great ploy for an advertiser to create an addiction to some type of food stuff. I mean, this is, you can't have just one. Well, he was very clear about this, giving everybody in the whole Zendo, and there were, you know, bags of these chips were flowing around because they're, you know, a couple hundred people crammed into the Zendo. And he said, I want you to take your chip. You know, and you could see, it was so funny, you could see some people who were just like looking at it going, uh, I want, I want, I want, I want. And other people kind of, you know, oh, whatever. Other people who were on diets who were, you know, pushing, pushing it away, no, I can't. You know, things like this. And you could see all of this separate self-sense, this, what um, my teacher typically called self-concern, brought into the holding of this chip. And then as it was put in everybody's mouth, he said, now I want you to experience this chip fully. Experience this flavor fully. Experience the crunch or the sogginess, the amount, the desire for more, the saltiness. You know, it just walked us right through the whole thing. And, man, it was like it was a whole meal. It was like it was just this you know, a beautiful experience. And then as he finished talking about it, he says, see, you can have a chip and not want one more. And by God, he was right. And it was like the whole Zendo kind of went, yeah. And his point was so elegant, so simple. And that is, when we live our life from that place of awareness, Everything becomes a completion. Everything becomes a completion. We don't have this vulnerable spot that ego or a separate self-sense is constantly trying to defend. There is nothing divided about our attention or our experience. There is nothing divided about who we are at our core we're fully there. And in that fullness, anything that veils awakening from our sight, any bit of fog or cloud cover, begins to burn away. 
And it's not only that we perceive or feel the light of the sunshine, we actually become it. And we become what's beyond the sun. We become the energetic interplay of infinity in this body. And from that position, lots of things begin to show themselves. As a matter of fact, all things begin to show themselves as incomprehensibly more than what they've ever shown up as and simultaneously incomprehensibly more simple, less than what they've shown themselves to be. Everything becomes instructive. Everything becomes our teacher. From that position of openness, we're no longer seduced unconsciously by anything. We're deprived of the beauty and natural pull of our dreams because we see them as being false constructs that might bring us some pleasure, but we see through that pleasure. We see what's more. And as much as there is a grief that goes with that, you mean I got to let go of my dreams? Because your dreams are creating fog. You do, you do. Let go of them. It doesn't mean they won't happen. But if you hang on to them, you diminish their chances. Awakening deprives us not only of our dreams and their pull, it also deprives, of, deprives us of the shelter we experience from methodically and habitually adhering to this inertia, this role of this stone of life. I sometimes think of, uh, you know, in Indiana Jones when he's, He's running away from that giant boulder that's perfectly spherical. That is such a great way of looking at a typical life, an unawakened life. A stone that just keeps rolling, squashes whatever is in its way, continually harming. Boom, 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 boom. It's just unconscious. It's not that the stone is wrong or bad. It's just not awake. When we awaken, we recognize that we must meet the world fully all of the time. We can't take a break. I'll meet it here. I'll meet it here, but damn it, not with that chocolate chip cookie. That's when I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to increase the fog every time I see one of those. Hmm. Great to look at. Great to look at. Everything becomes instructive. But when you awaken, when this begins to happen, and it will, you begin to kind of, uh, I sometimes say, coalesce the experience of awakening into your day-to-day -day nature, into your day-to-day -day life. You begin this 
uh, deep fusion. And I say deep fusion because you're not putting anything together. You're just letting go of what is unnecessary. But isn't ego necessary? Ego got me here. Exactly. Ego got you here. Are you ready? Are you ready to let go of it? Because when you're ready to let go of it, that's when the pulsing throb of what is the deep singularity shows up. You have to be ready. It's not a partial thing after a certain point. Up to a certain point, it, it usually is partial. Ego wants to manage the whole experience until ego is seen for what it is, and then uh-oh, all sorts of stuff begins to happen. There's a recognition that ego is always being discovered on the stage of mind, we sometimes say. It feels shame. It feels embarrassed. It feels small. And it realizes that it's just not going to get the job done. The ego, as a little dancing performer on this stage, then kind of surrenders to what is real. And what is real is what's in the audience, what's always watching it. That's our awareness. That's the aspect in us that's, if you will, wet just like the ocean. That's the aspect in us that is continually shining, that is continually enlivened by experience. So in this way, and this may sound odd, awakening, real awakening is not an experience. It's not a state. Hate to bust your idea here. But awakening is not like an, you know, this profound aha moment and then you go prancing around in a bliss state for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and then months and months and years and years and years and then you just decide not to eat or anything. You just kind of sit like a lump on your couch and people come to your house and seek your wisdom and you grow a beard especially the ladies you know they grow these big nice yeah <laughs> it's not what happens <laughs> and uh as a matter of fact uh, sometimes it's referred to as the stateless state in other words it's just the isness the being of who you are, consciously expressed continually without anything extra. That's the way they used to describe Suzuki Roshi. What was I, I, I know I've told you guys this story, but it's just so so amazing. I asked um, uh, Linda Ruth Cutts. I said, "Okay, what was he like?" Said, well, I I think it was best explained to me as. Nothing extra. Imagine that. Imagine being that type of human where there's just nothing extra. It's just the all, all the time. There's nothing extra to add. It's not about the car. It's not about the clothes. It's not about the hairstyle. It's not about the spirituality. It's not about the experience or the non-experience. It's not about anything. It just is right here, right now. Perpetually now-ness. And this is a gift. The awakening experience is a gift. In Sufi, we call it the uh, hal. It's a gift 
Sufism. The awakening experience is not awakening. It's the, the experience, the thing that points to awakening for us. I hope that's clear. In other words, the awakening experience, aha, points to what's real on the other side of the experience itself. And this is a divine stroke of grace. This is a gift. This is hal. Embodying that which is beyond, that which the awakening experience points to, embodying, if you will, awakening, that's earned. In Sufism, we call that maqam. The gift is the awakening experience. Embodying that awakening is what is earned. Maqam. That's the path we're on. We help each other, not just in this sangha, but in the universal sangha. We help everybody get the gift, including ourselves. And then from that place, we begin to embody the gift. That's where the real heavy lifting occurs. So to that end, I go back to the poem. Since everything in life is but an experience, perfect in being what it is, having nothing to do with good or bad, acceptance or rejection, one may well, one may well burst out in laughter. Cheers. So you say the heavy lifting begins, but it has no weight. Right, right. It's just the continuous now. Now. Is that what it is? To me. To who? Well. That's heavy lifting. I, I don't know. That's heavy lifting. Okay? Yeah. That's the heavy lifting. Otherwise, we can get tastes all the time. The heavy lifting is that there's no thing there. And as long as there can, is a continual reinterpretation, you know, as long as there is a categorization, okay, as long as it's non-question, it's weight. It's heavy. Now, essentially what happens is this cool discrimination, what the awakening experience points to is this new area of discrimination, which is, okay, this activity is going to be helpful. It's going to burn the veils up. This activity is not going to be helpful. It's going to put more veils in my way. In the same way that that experience, usually for people, is very confusing, okay? You learn at a very early age that going to the barbecue where dad is, uh, you know, and he's got some, my dad at least had these wild conflagrations that were totally out of control. I was always petrified and my mom was petrified that the house was going to burn down because he always put too much lighter fluid on there, okay? And whenever I would go out there, my dad would say, Michael, be careful. It's very, very little. I remember this vividly. And I remember one time he had just turned around 
and I put my hand up onto the barbecue. I never did it again because I recognized real quickly, of course, I was crying my eyes out and everything, but I recognized real quickly, oh, that's not helpful. The same thing happens when the grace of Hal, the gift comes. And when the gift is opened and then consciously we move down the path from that place, we begin to recognize this is going to hurt, this is going to be helpful. But that doesn't happen as long as there's a me doing it. That's the heavy lifting. I don't know if that makes any sense. Well, it does somewhat, but the... Um Point of reference. We need to hear you. We need to hear you. Yeah, the, the, po the point of reference is tough. To speak uh, in a uh, in the non-I form. Yeah, practice that. It's so, it's so. I mean, because it's on it's on different levels. Speaking without I, in other words, first start with the personal pronoun I. And then start with possessive pronouns, me and mine, you know, the mine thing, that's especially cool. And then from there, it's speaking in interpretive absolute terms from what the I knows. Ah, here's what's true. Right? Okay. And so we kind of just keep digging and digging and digging and digging and digging. And what comes out from that is this earth, earthquake, absolute earthquake. And it begins to slowly infuse us in a different way. The choices become really clear. Ooh, that is a hot coal. I will not grab that. Or, better yet, this coal is starting to burn. I better drop it. Right? So you said, I better drop it. Uh, definitely. Yeah. I sure should. Because I don't like my coal. Burning your hand. Burning my hand. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, your Burning point. The hand. Right. But, you know, I mean, one of the things, I mean, I, th I think this, this is like, it's, it's really important, yeah. but it's also absolute bullshit. <laughs> this has, it has, it doesn't have anything to do with awakening. It has to do with you and me getting clever on each other. And guess right. what that does? It's another veil there. It does. Makes We're it real still thick. There. Yeah. The veil is still there. When it's released. Okay? When it's released. The veil is released. It's we bring consciousness to it. We bring consciousness to the coal. The heat. I had a really quick question, but uh I was wondering because uh, it seems like meditation is usually perceived as being a very serious activity. Have you, or I guess better I should say, is it okay to ever laugh or cry or experience any of those kind of emotions where, nor I mean, normally, I mean, I know in the past I, I felt like there were moments where I was about to start cracking up about something, but you hold it back because you're like, oh, that's inappropriate. But at the same time, you know that, oh, maybe I should be fully aware of my emotions, so. Yeah. 
what it, what it sounds like you're saying, and I want to make sure I'm really clear on it, is that like when like you want to be fully aware of your emotions, right? Were you ever not fully aware of the desire to laugh or the impulse to laugh? Yes and no. I mean, I'm sure there are times where, uh, yes and no. <laughs> Being aware of the impulse, what's prior to the impulse is really the work. If there is something in you that um, is feeling really, 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 you know, like you want to crack up, my recommendation is study it rather than indulge it. Okay. And that doesn't mean that you're not aware of your feelings means you're getting hyper aware of your feelings okay you also want to make sure that whatever it is that you or you or you or you or any of you are doing on your cushion is supportive of the group so for example when I was dared to sing Hotel California at the top of my lungs <laughs> you know I uh, I thought very seriously about doing it we got a zendo filled with people I just thought that would have been the fun and you know what what really came up was, why do I want to be that selfish? Why do I want to attract? Why? What is it? What is the impulse that really wants to shake the cage so much? That was my frustration. And the other guy, you know, he and I just thought that would be hilarious. And 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 I know that whole period of meditation, he was sweating. He was thinking I was going to do it. Thankfully, I didn't. But he gave me a gift. The gift to mm, just kind of do whatever I want, right? There's a balance. It's not only what your impulse tells you, but what's prior to the impulse, study that. Okay? You bring full attention into it. If you giggle or something during your meditation, okay, you're not going to be fired. <laughs> you know, if you cry during your meditation, you're not, mm -mm. whatever happens, happens. Bring full awareness to it. And if it's going to disturb other people, then, you know, just gently excuse yourself from the from the meditation hall. That's all. So the deep, be aware. Be aware of those feelings. And who is it that's having them? Who is it that's having those feelings? That's where all of this takes off. Time for another? Anybody have a comment or question? Um, one of the things you said this evening was about having our dreams and letting go of our dreams. And then I think in almost the next breath you said, awakening deprives us of our dreams. That's, there's a it deprives us of, well, what I meant to say, it deprives us of our attachment to the dream okay does that make sense yes that makes sense because i think i said in there somewhere that it doesn't mean you're not going to have your dreams come true i think i said that right you didn't did I? say that okay it deprives us of our relationship our habitual relationship to whatever those dreams might be mm -hmm. now the the selling point here for all of you marketers out there is that or us buyers. <laughs> you buyers exactly even better <laughs> Yeah, you consumers, you spiritual consumers. <laughs> the The key thing here is that what's uncovered is so much more 
Mm-hmm. Very hard to sell that, though. Sit still, let go of everything, shut up, don't lean in, don't push away, and you'll have everything. That's what those spiritual preachers want to remind you. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Are we spiritual? <laughs> right. <laughs>